morning again, Mercy Hill. If you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, we'll be in verses 43 to 52 this morning. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. Read along with me this morning. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, this morning we're, we're thankful for the privilege and honor we have to gather this morning in this place. Thank you for the songs that were already sung, the announcements, the work that you're doing in our midst. And now, Father, as we pause for a moment and we, we ponder this difficult, difficult text before us, Lord, this morning, the, betray, the betraying of our Savior, we pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to receive what you would have us to learn this morning. That you'd work in it through my heart and my words, God, that you would be honor, honored and glorified and Christ would be lifted up. We pray in his name. Amen. So our text this morning details for us what I'm calling this morning the title of my sermon, The Treason and Abandonment of Christ. As I set the scene this morning, what we need to remember this morning is this is the perfect setup. Jesus is outside the city, and it's well past midnight. If you'd remember last week, um, the sermon was about Jesus praying in the garden, right? And the disciples were falling asleep. Well, it's now past midnight. It's completely dark. This is the religious leader's chance to seek out Jesus with, of course, Judas's help. Judas is one of the 12, as it says here in our text this morning. This is where the text picks up. And the treason and abandonment is now going to commence. Those who played a role, as we're going to see this morning, have ulterior motives for how this was going to play out. Ultimately, it was an arrest carefully coordinated in the way our Heavenly Father was going to plan it. It was an unjust arrest. It was the ultimate abandonment. 
But in our text this morning, you're going to see four main points, I hope. Four human responses or reactions to capture Jesus, and they're all futile. Their efforts to either control or manage the situation according to human plans. But in each case, they ultimately fail to take control of the situation because Jesus remains the master of his ultimate destiny, which is to go to the cross. So those four human efforts are the plan to arrest Jesus is devious, betraying him with a kiss, but Jesus wasn't surprised. The second point is the people who captured Jesus are strong, but Jesus willingly surrenders. The response to his arrest is violent with Peter's sword, but Jesus does not respond with force. And lastly, Jesus' companions desert him, but Jesus now willingly goes to be tried. So my first point this morning is the devious plan of Jesus, the devious plan to arrest Jesus by Judas. You see in our text this morning in verse 43, it says, and immediately, while he was still speaking. Remember, Jesus had to rouse the disciples from their sleep, and as I said, it's early Friday morning. I learned in preparation for the sermon, and I was just, you know, stunned because it just didn't occur to me. Often when we, when we read these texts or the final moments of Jesus' life, we think that it spans like several days. But as I said, this is Friday, early Friday morning. Our Savior is going to be dead by 3 o'clock. It happens so fast. You see, the devious plan was set in motion by Jesus, and it was, of course, a betrayal with a kiss. Did you notice what, what Mark, the writer of this gospel, says? Judas came, one of the twelve. Judas came, one of the twelve. It states of the utter surprise that Judas was with this crowd, and it serves to deepen the sense of horror one of Jesus' closest companions completes his betrayal and was the actual agent of Jesus' arrest. But it, of course, underlines the exact fulfillment of Jesus' announcement in verses 18 to 20. So can you picture what happens here? Jesus and the disciples are standing there, but they see Judas in this large cohort, we're going to learn in a minute, coming towards him. Jesus is looking at Judas. Their eyes meet. And of course, Judas's eyes are full of evil, completing his betrayal as he's bringing this large crowd with him to have Jesus arrested in complete and utter darkness. But of course, as we're going to see, they come with weapons, swords, clubs, torches, because it's so dark outside in the garden. We know in Luke chapter 22 that Jesus gives Judas one more chance to repent, to change his mind. It's interesting how each of the Gospels kind of overlays and gives us a full scope or, or the scene of how this actually happens, different interpretations of it. But we see in Luke that Jesus does give Judas one more chance to repent, fall at Jesus' feet, worship his Savior, but he doesn't. We see that does not happen. Mark says here something really important. He says, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I'm going to kiss that's him. Seize him and lead him away under guard. This was a premeditated arrangement. 
This devious plan was, of course, fully premeditated with the police and the guards. A nonverbal betraying or a signal with this secret message that says that this is the man, this is the son of man. How could this have happened to Judas? Have you ever thought about this for a second? Jesus, you know, him being with Jesus for three years, we also see in Luke chapter 22 that Satan actually enters Judas. He actually possesses him to initiate this plan. But this was his moment to betray him, completely abandoning Christ and allowing his heart to go cold against Jesus. But we know there's nothing that Satan can do which God does not know or ultimately control himself. And this whole devious plan was really a busy night for Judas. Think about this for a second. He had to circle the city. He had to go around the city to go get all these, to get this whole army together. It was, there's the temple guard, there's the Roman police, there's the scribes, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, everybody's with him. About a thousand together. He didn't just have to go to one place to get this whole large cohort together. He had to go run around the city to complete his betrayal while Jesus and the disciples were in the garden. So this was a busy night for Judas. It was no easy task. But God allowed this possession and betrayal of Judas to bring about the redemption that his people need. As we heard from Elder Tim Pasek a few weeks ago, this was the moment. It had to happen this way. The Greek word for kissed here is an intensified verb, which means to show continual affection or to kiss fervently. We also see the same word in Acts chapter 20, verse 37, where it says about the Apostle Paul, it says, and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. That, of course, is a, a more fond affectionate betrayal, or not betrayal, but a show of affection for someone who they completely love and are going to dearly miss. It's the same word in Acts that we see here, but of course, as we've seen already, secretly encoded with a betrayal. One theologian said the implication that Judas prolonged, prolonged his dramatic show of affection for Jesus, making it last long enough for, this, for the soldiers to identify their target, that this was the person. But consider the significance, we're still under this first point, consider the significance of Judas's kiss because it was such an intimate expression, an act of love for respect for Jesus, but ultimately be, to betray him. Equals, of course, we know, kiss each other. But Judas kissed Jesus and also used the word rabbi it was a totally false expression, saying rabbi and then fervently kissing Jesus to give the signal to the soldiers that this was the man. How else would they know it was Jesus? Have you thought about this? How else would they know? Remember, it's completely dark and there is some, a little bit of light with the torches and everything, but how would the Roman soldiers, they weren't around Jesus all the time, how would they know it was him? There was nothing that would really have, you know, um, that Jesus, there was nothing that would stand out to see that this was in fact Jesus because of the complete and utter darkness. So Judas knew who Jesus was and had to initiate this action. 
this extremely hypocritical action. Uh, in Proverbs 27, verse 6, it says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an, ult- but an enemy multiplies kisses. Often, um, it said, one commentator said, Often foes disguise themselves as friends, but evil often wears a mask to conceal its true purpose. And I think that applies to what happens here with Judas. Remember, the Bible requires our motives, not just our actions, to be clear and aligned with God's. Can you see the importance and assess Judas's motives here to see he was storing up evil in his heart, and it completely manifests itself here. We know from, from the rest of Judas's life that, of course, he got a substantial reward for this betrayal. Uh, he ended up giving it all back. He felt remorse and returned the money because he felt condemned. But ultimately, we know that Judas took his, all, his own life, sadly. So my second point this morning is the people who capture Jesus are strong. What about these other individuals here? Who plays a part with Judas? Well, that's the large cohort of soldiers. My second point, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But Jesus willingly surrenders. Look with me in verse 46. It says, And when they came, and when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. In verse 46, they laid hands on him and seized him. This is a large crowd of around a thousand soldiers, scribes, priests, as we've already learned. You know, more likely, it's probably a cohort, an army, a division of soldiers with the temple guard or police and a detachment of Roman soldiers who were also in that town. The temple police, they carried what was commonly known as staves at that time, and the soldiers carried swords. But you think of the swords, they're really large, and they probably take about two hands to hold. So they came with weapons. But this crowd was a part of the divine plan of redemption of Jesus' path. This is when Jesus' path to the cross was going to begin. Judas gave out Jesus' movement, and he wanted it to be done in secret. Last week, we heard that Judas knew that Jesus was going to be in the garden. He knew that that, uh, Jesus routinely went to this place. But in reality, Jesus was doing everything publicly. He had no ulterior motives. So maybe you're asking yourself, why did the arrest have to happen here, outside the city, at night? This arrest had to be done under the complete cover of darkness. And I think in, in you know, my thoughts about this, this was probably a cowardly move because they came with the swords and clubs, not because they were afraid of Jesus. They weren't, they weren't afraid of him. They were afraid of the crowds. They were afraid of the people and what they might do. The soldiers and the guards were in fear of the people that they were supposed to serve and protect. You know, they carried lanterns and torches because they were probably expecting to hunt for Jesus and the disciples. Maybe if they knew they were coming, well, they're going to run from us, so we're going to have to search and look for them in the city or outside the city in utter darkness. But remember, 
if you want to look back later in the beginning of verse 14, or chapter 14, it said the scribes wished to not have Jesus arrested because during the feast to control the uproar. There was going to be an uproar for the people if they did this in complete, in, in public, in front of everyone. It shows the leaders of that day refused to believe who Jesus was. And regardless, a whole large number of soldiers came. But the fact remains, remember in verse 46 it says, And they laid hands on him and seized him. It remains abundantly clear that these soldiers would not have laid hands on Jesus had he not submitted and given himself up willingly. Think about that. Jesus just stood still and he let the soldiers seize him and put their hands on him and capture him. Remember, he prayed to his father before this arrival and seizure and he was now prepared to walk and willingly go to the cross for us. This began the whole entire path to Jesus' cross, where he was going to bear it for us. This seizure did happen with Judas, and he was vital in supplying all the information to where Jesus would be. And it had to happen within the guard's jurisdiction. Typically, Jesus entered a town with crowds of pilgrims and those who were following him. And I said, it would be, it would be hard to effectuate an arrest there with the large crowds that typically follow Jesus. But regardless, the seizure, as I've said, could not have happened under the cover of darkness had Jesus not gone willingly. They thought he was going to escape, but they could have not been more wrong. I wonder if they were surprised when whoever put their hands on Jesus, if they were completely surprised that it just happened that easily, and he just gave himself up. Jesus prayed, remember, uh, previously, yet not I will, but what you will. He was ready to go. When, when the arrest and seizure happened, Mark does not record for us in our text any charges that are being made against Jesus. No one said anything to Jesus. I wonder if it was just completely quiet. But even though there were no charges made, according, according to Jewish law, because the Sanhedrin authorized the arrest. Apparently, this was all completely legal. I do, um, in my place of employment, you know, there's, uh, I deal with some difficult individuals often. It's been an unusual uh, 20 months or so without having my workplace or going there routinely. But I remember a story as I was preparing. A story came to mind. Um, one of my adventurous, you know, mornings in the courthouse, um, in the courtroom, uh, you know, there's, it's rare that actually good things happen in a courthouse. Nobody just wakes up and says, I'm just so happy to go to court this morning. It's going to be a wonderful time. So there's about two times a year on adoption day when adoptions happen. We've had families, you know, in our church here uh, have an adoption, and um, that's a joyous day. Something like that happens. And there's also graduation from my program that I work in. That's also a happy day as well. But 97% of the time, nothing good happens. So one morning, um, our, our judge had to uh, deal with an individual. Um, he had had a difficult week, and so she's in, engaging in dialogue with this individual. The courtroom is full. You know, there's, there's, there's not an empty seat in all the pews. And um, you know, the typical 
courtroom was filled with you know, different individuals and, and the sheriff's department and, and such and the attorneys. Well, she's questioning my client about what happened during the week and, and you know, wh what happened, what went wrong. And she tells him that he's going to have to be placed in custody. Well, the conversation is continuing to go, and he finally, finally dawns on him what's happening. Well, he's telling the judge, I, you know, I, I can't go into custody today, and there's a door off to the left where he's going to have to go. And the sheriff's officer starts to come towards him, and he, well, he doesn't want to go, so he starts backing his way through the galley, backing his way, trying to get to the double doors. I don't know where he thought he was going to go. He's on the third floor of a courthouse. There's dozens of sheriff's officers. He's a good five, maybe seven minute walk to the parking garage to get to his car. Where was he going to go? So the officer starts yelling at him, you know, you, know, you better not leave the judge because she saw what was going to happen. She has to go out the secret door to her chambers and once all this, you know, chaos breaks loose. So he's backing his way out, goes to the double doors. Before he could hit the double doors, there was eight sheriff's officers waiting for him, put him on his stomach, and he's taken into custody. There was a lot of yelling, a lot of commotion. Uh, needless to say, it was an adventurous morning there. That was actually the first morning of my new judge. That was her first morning on the bench. And uh, she was probably surprised by all the chaos that, that broke loose in her courtroom. But where, where my client thought he would go, I had no idea. But he did not want to go willingly that morning and he put himself in more danger. So he, you know, he, we had that client for a couple more months and every time, you know, he had to be placed in custody because he had done that. Once we kind of planned, you know, he had to get taken into custody a couple more times, there's more sheriff's officers that would come in. So we would not have that situation anymore. He did not willingly want to go and put himself in more danger by doing that. Jesus, our savior, what we forget sometimes is that even though he was surrounded by the temple police, the Roman guard, thousands of soldiers, a large crowd, our Savior was surrounded also by the hosts of heaven that he had at his own disposal. But he gives himself up willingly. So we see this morning that Jesus was betrayed by a devious plan of Judas He's met with a strong and forceful response from the soldiers. This morning, he does not, our third, my third point, he does not return force with force, but willingly submitted to their seizure. The response to Jesus' arrest, we see also, is a violent reflex from Peter, one of those who stood by, we see in verse 47, and he draws his sword. Luke's account of this arrest um, does, act, does in fact mention Peter by name. And he actually asked permission for Jesus to strike. But in Mark's account, there was not a second to spare. Peter did not wait for permission, but actually drew his sword and struck the servant. You know, when, when, even though the scripture says sword, uh, we know that there's two disciples who uh, are, are actually, you know, scripture tells us that they have in their possession swords. It's more like a dagger. It could be concealed in their clothing. It was not one of those two-handed swords that the Roman soldiers had. They were the sons of thunder. I don't know if there are the kids here this morning, if they knew that some of Jesus' disciples had nicknames. 
the sons of thunder, Peter and Simon the Zealot. John chapter 18, verse 10 actually mentions Peter by name there. And probably Peter intended to slit the throat of uh, the servant here and try to kill him. Peter was a fisherman. I don't think we could probably all understand that Peter was not trained for physical combat. So this was probably really a futile attempt to protect Jesus. He was clearly in over his head with this physical confrontation. You know, asking, Lord, do you want us to, Lord, what do you want us to do here? We can't let this happen. What do you want me to do? He pulls out a sword and just strikes the ear of the servant. Peter had his own plan and his own agenda. In Matthew chapter 25, if, you wanna, if you're taking notes, you want to read that later, Matthew gives us a little bit more detail of this attack. It says, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up a sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will have at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? Peter responded and directed Peter to submit to the plan of God. Meeting force with force is not the way of Jesus. Jesus would not allow any violence to happen. He would not offer up any resistance to this arrest. You see, Peter thought he was doing the right thing. We're tempted to kind of laugh at Peter sometimes in, 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 in Scripture and see the things that he does. But what Peter forgot was that the Prince of Peace must go peacefully. He must go in this way. The Scripture says that it must be fulfilled. It has to happen. But there's a rising tension here the police, the temple guard facing Jesus and the, the disciples. But if force with force happens, there's a major problem that could result. Peter doesn't realize what this physical confrontation could lead to. They're completely overwhelmed. They don't have weapons. They're completely overwhelmed and major loss of life could happen. So examine yourself this morning, friends. Do you have the uh, enthusiasm and misplaced zeal that Peter manifests here? Maybe you're like me and you need some more direction, or maybe not have any zeal at all. I don't know. So examine yourselves this morning. Friends, Jesus strongly rebukes the soldiers. Not only rebukes Peter, but he, re he rebukes the soldiers and the priests here. But he doesn't make a protest about the arrest itself. Remember, he asked them, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? He's already in custody. He probably already has his hands arrested. You know, he's arrested. He's in, he's in custody as he kind of rebukes the soldiers here and has some harsh words for them. He was not a robber. Our Lord was not a criminal. He's a devoted, merciful teacher one theologian said about this, highway robbers. Remember, there's this character Barabbas that we see later. Barabbas was a hero, not, not our merciful Savior, to the people. 
Remember, they beg for Barabbas to be released in John chapter 18. They want Barabbas instead of Jesus in the end. And Jesus would ultimately be crucified between two robbers shortly after the seizing. It happens merely hours later. So we've seen this morning the human efforts of the arrest of Jesus. Jesus was Judas's devious plan. The Romans' powerful force. Peter's violent reflex. And my fourth and last point this morning is Jesus' companions desert him. But Jesus now willingly goes to be tried. There's a jarring nature of what happens here in verses 49 to 50. You might have missed Jesus' words, what he says in verse 49. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. In verse 50, and they all left him and fled. Perhaps these words actually stung the conscience of the disciples once they heard that. That was the moment they knew they had to leave. And they all turned their backs and run into the dark night of the garden, leaving Jesus there, arrested, alone with the temple police and the guards. It must have been agonizing for Jesus in this very moment to know that he was left alone, arrested, abandoned by his closest friends and allies. If you write in your Bible, I don't, you know, maybe you would want to consider underlining verse 50 there. It's a short sentence, but it's a loaded sentence. And they left him and fled. I did more research, on, research and look, kind of looked at the other translations to see what they say. And maybe you do have another one here this morning. The NIV says everyone. The ESV here says all. Can you get the picture? All. Everyone. There's no one left to be and to occupy and be the companion to Jesus. All means all. Jesus was left alone here. One theologian explains more on this fact by saying, it points out that all, standing emphatically at the end of this sentence, stresses his complete forsakenness. Not even Peter, who tried to defend Jesus futilely with this, with this dagger, he didn't even prove to be the exception that he claimed he would be. As I said already, he was the sons of thunder. They're gone. They left him. Peter's described later, maybe we'll see next week, he's described later as following at, at a distance, but then he decides to stay a little nice and cozy by the fire. And, uh, but he eventually denies Christ, but he too flees. This fulfills what he told them in, verse, in chapter 14, verse 27, where he says, you will all fall away. The sheep will be scattered. Jesus, we presume, is watching his disciples turn their backs and run, disappear into the darkness, disappearing through the trees. Friends, even our hearts are unsteady at times when we face a test. I, I, I found a quote in, in preparation for this. It says, good men do not know what they will do until they are tested. We have to watch our words times where we utter our assurances to others that we will never fall away, like Peter. May we not say that our faith will stand the test of time and never forsake our Savior. Both James and Peter remind us later in their own epistles that say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Maybe they actually learn their lesson here. 
there's an account at the end that I don't really have a lot of time to, to expand on, but there's this, this story here about, ironically, a naked man who runs. He leaves all his clothes behind. Some scholars say that this is maybe the, uh, the writer of this gospel, Mark, who actually puts his own account in here of just he's also running. So even the bravest warriors, you know, there's, there's a book of the Bible, Amos. I don't know if we do our daily devotions in, in Amos sometimes, but in the book of Amos, chapter 2, verse 16, alludes to here to this passage, and it says, even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day. So it's a, it's a tragic story, and maybe we're kind of tempted to laugh, you know, that there's a naked man who runs away, but perhaps we'll have time to see the implications of this, to seeing maybe Mark putting his own testimony in here about fleeing the Savior in this time of trouble and betrayal. So it should be evident to you this morning that the Word of God, the purpose of God, and the plans of Jesus will not be impeded by the devious plan. It's not going to be impeded by the powerful forces of the Roman guard and the desertion of the disciples. He will continue to progress towards the destiny of the cross. And we see that Jesus' response here is to calmly and faithfully submit to the plans of God. In Zechariah 13, verse 7, it says, Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. In verse 49, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 says, Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hands against the little one. Judas had a plan to betray Jesus, and Jesus went willingly. The soldiers had a plan to seize Jesus, but he willingly surrendered. Peter had the violent reflex, but restored the servant's wound, and the disciples had plans, gave assurances like the apostle Peter to never fall away. But they abandoned Christ in the end. God's plan in Christ would go forward despite the futile and human attempts to bind or thwart Jesus, to detain and dismiss him. As I close this morning, maybe there's a couple things that we need to remember here. Looking at the treason and abandonment of Jesus, maybe we're prone to ignore our Savior who gave himself up willingly for you. Maybe we fill our lives with work and pleasure, and so I don't pay attention to the claims of Jesus on my own life. But Jesus did this for you. He willingly allowed himself to be seized for you. Maybe you minimize Jesus by saying he's just another God among gods. Maybe you're watching this morning and you're curious about who Jesus is. But there are many ways to God. Maybe that's what you say in your own heart. Let's all just respect him equally. You know, let's all coexist. Jesus is mainly probably just a good example to be followed. That's minimizing Christ. He is your Savior. We should maximize Him in our own lives because He did this for you. The only reason you're not an enemy of God's plan is because of God's work and grace in your own life. God is, His own plan is restraining sin in our lives and changing hearts. He may have changed yours. He changed mine. Otherwise, I would willingly reject Christ. I would betray him. I would turn my own back and run into the woods 
and abandon him if not for God's grace in my own life. I would oppose Christ at all costs if he had not changed my heart and changed yours. This is how we're able to see and understand the plan of Christ, which took him to the cross for us. So let's respond to the gospel this morning in faith and repentance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what we've learned this morning in the gospel and hearing and understanding the, the treasonous act of what happened to our Savior, his complete and utter abandonment. The very moment that he was left alone, arrested, seized, falling into the hands of his enemies, and ultimately going to the cross for us. And so, Father, we pray and we thank you for the grace that you have shown in our own lives. We thank you for the wonderful and beautiful unfolding plan of redemption that we all need. Father, we thank you that Jesus willingly submitted. He willingly went to the cross for us. If not for us, if not for that, Lord, we would be lost in our own sin. And so, Father, we thank you this morning. I pray that these truths would be heavy on our hearts, that would be stirred to faith and moved to repentance, exclaiming and, Lord, admitting that we do need a Savior. We do need Jesus, for we pray in his name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.